0: Hi, I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 29 of Kindred Cast, Liontree's biweekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. On today's show, Liontree CEO R. A. Borkov heads over to London to speak with Sean Bratches, managing director of commercial operations for Formula One. Though they managed to do the interview in a conference room instead of a pub, the pair discuss reimagining Formula One for the digital age, Sean's aggressive growth strategy, and the company's unique direct-to-consumer play, F1 TV. Enjoy the conversation.
1: Welcome to KindredCast. I am very pleased to be sitting here in London in Mayfair. Not in a pub. Not in a pub.
2: No, we're in St. James. Okay.
1: I'm very pleased to be sitting here in London, in St. James Place, with my friend Sean Bratches. Sean has spent almost 30 years building and transforming sports brands. He joined Formula One in January 2017, just after Liberty Media's acquisition of the company. Prior to joining Formula One, Sean spent almost 27 years at ESPN, most recently as Executive Vice President of Sales and Marketing, really driving their primary revenue streams. He also spearheaded the launch of the first live streaming cable channels online and on mobile devices through Watch ESPN. And before this, he served as the regional sales manager at Store Television Sales, I remember that company, selling national spot advertising for its seven owned and operated television stations across the country. So, Sean, thanks for joining us on KindredCast. Thanks and for having me. Lending your insights into the world of sports and particularly Formula One.
2: It's good to be here. Or as Keith Richards says, it's good to be anywhere, <laughs> but uh, glad to be here today with you
1: it's great to have you here. You and Chase together probably has the best hair in the business in media and sports, right? Speaking from (laughs) a guy who is envious, between your eyebrows and his mustache, it's an incredible place. Yeah.
2: I have four sons and they've sent me some mashups that they've found on the internet, which are not too flattering to neither Chase nor (laughs) myself.
1: (laughs) Well, Formula One is an iconic brand. I mean, obviously a lot of fans out there. How has the first year been? I mean, I think now in 2017, I think that you were in 27 or 26 different countries around the world talking about the
2: brand. What drew you to Formula One? Well, listen, I think it's a unique opportunity in the world, not only of sport, of business. You've got a 67-year-old company, a global brand, over a half a billion fans, and that was, I would say, materially under-managed as a business. So it's somewhat of a combination between a startup and a business turnaround. It's been an interesting year. Liberty, I think, closed on the asset. It was January 23rd. I was sitting in a hotel room weeks before here in London, anticipating the close. If it hadn't, I would have headed back to the States. But fortunately, it did. One of the things when uh, Chase and Greg initially called me, they asked me to come over and run the business. What they didn't tell me was there wasn't a business here. There was no commercial group. You know, this was a one-man show, Bernie Ecclestone, in terms of media rights or sponsorship or digital, research, events, hospitality. It just didn't exist.
1: But it was a competitive process for Greg to get a hold of the asset. I think the management team with Chase and yourself was a key differentiator that he had.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think Liberty invested for three primary reasons, right? Because it is a global brand, the number of fans that it has, because technology is disintermediating the way fans or consumers around the world ingest video, the belief is that live sports is going to be the last bastion of content that on a predictable basis can aggregate large audiences. And then thirdly, it's the belief that it was an undermanaged asset, which I believe can in, I can attest to strongly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So you seem like it's been a whirlwind the last 12 months. Yeah, it's
2: been a whirlwind. You know, we got here. The Formula One was managed out of Bernie's townhouse in Knightsbridge. And neither Chase nor I, not that there wasn't even any room there. You know, they actually had a... Conference room called the Playboy room, and there were centerfolds all over it. was, oh, it, yes, it was from a different era. Yeah, so Chase and I first started out going to coffee shops, Starbucks to pick up Wi Fi to have meetings to communicate. I think where I ran into you first over here was we leased some space in St. James Square, yeah, a
1: windowless office. Pretty windowless dark.
2: office, it was, uh, you know, this <laughs> very is serious. very serious. Now we've proper my favorite English word, proper. Everything's proper. This is a proper discussion we're having. We have proper real estate here in St. James. We're starting to build a staff. We've put together a strategic plan.
1: The offices, I mean, are beautiful, not only because of the location, but also the iconic memorabilia and photos and equipment and tires around the office. You really walk into a Formula One museum or setting. It's an iconic
2: brand. And I, I think The offices represent that. We wanted to build something that was representative of the extraordinary asset and iconography that is associated with Formula One. I called all the teams and Pirelli, and we have a Rolex totem here. We have a Heineken bar here. If you want to grab a beer afterwards, we can do that. One of our sponsors. We've got a lot of customers. I think this is a brand that is in need of being detonated from a commercial standpoint, and we've got a succession of customers and brands that come through here every single day. And we wanted it to look, feel, smell, taste like Formula One. And I think we've done a, a nice job of doing that.
1: Take me back to the ESPN days. What was it that drew you to Formula One? And what did you take from your ESPN days in terms of brand building and driving that business in its obviously its formative years with all the ESPN strength that kind of has a parallel to where you are today?
2: Moving to London, it was a big move. My four sons are all out of the house, independent and all doing well. I wouldn't have done this had they still been in the house. Huge fan of London, known Chase for a long time. And it's just been a privilege working with him on rebuilding this business and reinventing it. As I looked at it when, you know, I was first called, you know, the fourth quarter of 2016, I thought that my experiences at ESPN running the commercial group there could add value to Formula One. I think that there was a lot of similarities in terms of my early times at ESPN. You know, we didn't call things startups back then, but effectively Mm -hmm. ESPN was a startup in the 80s. And we didn't know exactly how things were going to unfold. And we didn't know this thing like the internet was going to come up. We didn't know Satellite was going to be on the horizon, which precipitated a massive capital investment in cable with a channel explosion and ESPN2 and ESPN3 and the litany of channels there. But here we've been through this and you can visualize what the opportunity is in the future. So I think here it's all about creating a vision and then executing on that vision. I think there's a lot of things that both Chase and I from our media background have conveyed to Formula One from a core standpoint. The other fascinating thing from my perspective is, is that having no commercial group here, really starting from the ground up, I've been able to create my own culture. Because there was no commercial group, there was no culture that existed. You know, I hired what I think is a absolutely fantastic edit of senior executives to run the respective divisions within the Formula One commercial group. And then I was able to impose a culture here that I think will ostensibly carry on and drive this to further heights. Pretty amazing. The
1: ESPN, as you said, was started in 1979. So in our day and age, Formula One is a almost 70-year-old company with half a billion fans around the world, yet no structure to deal with the commercial enterprise, no commercial business whatsoever. When you walk into that scenario, how do you find that? How is that possible? And then what is the commercial business that you're trying to create? What is it doing? What are
2: your goals? It's encouraging that it's survived, notwithstanding no attention to the commercial side of the business. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of the things that we look to and are very encouraged about. When I first got here not having anything. One of the first things I did, Ari, was I went out and we did a global brand study. And we went to four continents. We spoke to seven avid formula fans on each continent for 10 hours over two days. We conducted six focus groups, each of 10 people on each continent comprised of avid Formula One fans, former casual, motorsport fans, spectacle fans, etc. We did panel data against digital platforms in each country. We did online surveys. We created this incredible wealth of knowledge about how fans perceive us. We really didn't have any kind of beacon, anything to drive for it, any knowledge about our fan base. And so we had reams and reams of paper that we synthesized down to effectively a brand book. It makes Goodnight Moon look like a Wikipedia site. So we're very concise. Our mission statement came out of that, which is to unleash the greatest racing spectacle on the planet. The key words there being unleash, racing, and spectacle came out of that is really five North Stars that drive our business. That is revel in the racing, breaking borders, putting the spectacular back into the spectacle, taste the oil and feel the blood boil. You created Mm -hmm. these taglines. Yes. Wow. So revel in the racing is all about creating a better racing on the grid. When I got here, our website, and we'll talk about that in a little while, but had a kind of a pithy statement about what Formula One was. And it was all in the pursuit of colon, speed. But what we found out was that speed was good, but what fans really wanted was racing, wheel to wheel, livery to livery racing. So one of the things we need to do on the grid is we need to get the back of the grid closer to the front of the grid. We need to figure out how the aerodynamics plays better and dirty air coming out of lead cars allows trailing cards to pass better. We need to work with our circuit partners to create opportunities for overtaking that in large part don't exist in many places today. Fundamentally, we need to put a better product on the track for fans. The second is breaking borders. We found that Formula One is perceived to be this extraordinarily exclusive sport, almost untouchable, impenetrable. And so while we think That's a positive thing in some regard. We wanted to create seams where people can play and touch the iconography. So, you know, we're doing car runs in city centers. We're relaunching our digital platforms. We're creating eSports League. We've got a Netflix deal. So we're trying to open it up a little and expose the sport. The third is putting the spectacular back into the spectacle. When you go to a Knicks-Lakers game or an Arsenal-Chelsea match, you're there for two or three hours and you go home. When you go to a Grand Prix, you're there for two or three days, six, seven, eight hours a day. And while there is content on the track, we need to engage fans in different ways and really create a much more entertainment experience. And I think one of the outgrowths of this brand study is we're trying to pivot... Formula One from a motorsport company to a media and entertainment brand. This is much part of it. We're creating four fan festivals in city centers in proximity to Grand Prix this year. So we're doing a lot on the spectacle standpoint. The fourth North Star is Taste the Oil. This is the most technologically advanced sport on the planet. And we need to tell the stories about that technology and about the engineers that developed this. Did you know that? you're not allowed to refuel a Formula One car once the Grand Prix starts, and they don't give you anywhere near enough fuel to finish the race. Wow. 30 to 45% of the energy that propels these machines comes from brake and exhaust heat. So there's a lot of stories there. And then the last one is Feel the Blood Boil. This is all about telling the story about these gladiators, these, these the 20 best drivers. This is the pinnacle of motorsport on the planet and how they rifle in these cars. It's 200 miles an hour on the precipice of death and danger at every single second. Take the helmet off them. Who are these individuals? That was a big part of one of the things I did when I first got here, which is really directed our efforts on the commercial side.
1: How are you progressing around these goals? I mean, these are grandiose. It's an incredible vision for the company and you're just getting started. But how are you measuring your progress around these five?
2: So we've created a strategic plan in some respects. When I got here, there was nothing in the pipeline. Right. Nothing. So I've been running around madly, kind of rolling grenades in every room I got into when I first got here to ensure that when I did hire a staff, there were things that were in development, so to speak. So from a media rights standpoint, we had seven markets come up after last season, China, United States, Spain, Italy, France, and Germany. We renewed all of those. And there's a cadence of agreements on that front that come up. We've got race promotion, which our three revenue streams are principally media rights, race promotion, sponsorship, and hospitality. From a race promotion standpoint, we're renewing existing deals. And then we're looking for the next marketplaces that we want to race in, marketplaces that I think are accredited to our brand. I think there's a big opportunity on that front. And from a sponsorship standpoint, We underpunch our weight class, I think, significantly. We have five global partners. We got here, and two had actually left. Very proud of the fact that we had two partners' contracts after last season terminate, and we've renewed them on very favorable terms to both of us. But, you know, when I landed last year, the only thing you could sponsor if you wanted to invest in Formula One was Trackside. That was it. You know, now we're rolling out amplified track side using technology in terms of virtual and LED. We're creating sponsorable opportunities through esports, through fan zones, through fan festivals, through digital. You know, we're launching a responsive web platform this summer, which will be a commercial site. If you wanted to buy a display ad on Formula One.com today, you couldn't. I couldn't sell it to you. No pre-roll, post-roll, mid-roll homepage. It's, it's not a commercial site. So we think that there's a massive opportunity to increase the revenue opportunity on the sponsorship side. I think we can manage very effectively the race promotion agreements. Media rights are subject to the cadence in terms of which they came up. We had a very good year last year, but the key there has been to really create a path for us to launch new products and services in this world where the existing agreements heretofore wouldn't permit almost anything. Most of our agreements, when I arrived last year, you couldn't replay a Grand Prix for a year after because I wanted to do a Twitter deal and you couldn't do it. We're breaking those down. So we continue to look at new areas like digital for growth, licensing for growth. There's big upside in terms of hospitality, as I said, again, sponsorship. So we're on the move.
1: And digital, I mean, that's one of the huge opportunities here because I know you struck a deal with Snap last year. What is the digital outgrowth of the business? I know that For Greg, that was one of the key parts of the thesis, that this could be streamed beyond where you are in the event itself. But how's that progressing?
2: There's a great legacy to Formula One as a business, but there's a latency in terms of business development. And digital is the poster child for that. When I first got a call, I started following some of the drivers, some of the teams on social media. And when I got here, I had lunch with Lewis Hamilton, and I asked him why he wasn't posting any Formula One Mm -hmm. iconography. And, you know, he basically put down a stack of papers, cease and desist letters that Bernie had sent him when he did. So there's a huge opportunity. And I initiated a social media guideline policies right away for the drivers, for the teams, for sponsors, for promoters. And we were actually the fastest growing sport on the planet in terms of social media growth. We were starting from a very low level. The growth has been absolutely extraordinary.
1: Unsatiated appetite, right? Because everyone... Is so passionate about the sport, and there probably was a huge gap of how they could tap into that between events and with their players and the brands, et cetera, and the teams.
2: And there's so many great stories that have just been laying foul that are waiting to be told. I couldn't imagine a better
1: direct-to-consumer offering than Formula One because you could reach all the fans directly, and there's so many around the world. So that must play into the strategy on digital and social, et cetera.
2: We're pushing hard on social. We're um, kind of amplifying our own efforts, which are growing dramatically. We're doing you know, partnerships with Snap. We just did a deal with Twitter for a number of fronts, including a post-Grand Prix show, uh, which Will Buxton will do, which we're very excited about. We're in the process of building a responsive web platform from the ground up. We're going to burn the incumbency to the ground this summer when we launch our new commercial platform. We're very engaged. We've hired a, a content team. We're investing significantly in that opportunity. We are launching for the Spanish Grand Prix, a live direct-to-consumer OTT product called F1 TV. And it's going to host each of the 21 Grand Prix. It'll host the support races from F2, hot laps, whatever goes on at the Grand Prix. So how's that being distributed? So that'll be distributed direct to consumer. We've partnered with Playmaker, which is a um, brand and entity that's owned by Comcast NBC. And it will be available in 50 countries around the world. A year ago when we got here, there was not a single broadcast contract that permitted us to go to one country. So we've been working extremely hard over the last really 12, 13 months in the renewal process in the seven countries that we're going into, and then also abrogating existing agreements to get those rights back so we can actually serve fans through this platform. But we're very excited about it. It's probably the most aggressive OTT launch in the marketplace today. There's going to be 24 concurrent streams, four different languages, a significant data overlay. One of the things about Formula One that is extraordinary is that each of the 20 cars at each Grand Prix, they have 120 sensors on each car and they put out 1,500 points of data every second, every second. And so, we have this massive cloud of data that sits above us that's just been underexploited or unexploited, trying to identify the immediate opportunities in that cloud, in that data stream, and turn those into user-facing, compelling propositions that unfold this sport, not only for the avid fan, but also for the casual and the fans that are coming in, I think is a very exciting opportunity for us.
1: For sure. And then the other opportunity is really a geographic opportunity to expand the races. I know you're traveling a lot already, but I think the statistics are that last year you held 20 races across 20 countries and five continents.
2: And this year will be 21 21, what's the incremental race? Malaysia fell off the schedule and Germany and France were added. So, you know- Germany, your hometown. My hometown. It's not in Berlin, it's in Hockenheim. Formula One is really the only true global sport. The Olympics and World Cup are global, but they take place once every four years. And when they do take place sorry, they take place in one country. Formula One, this year, 21 countries, five continents every single year. And what we're trying to do from a Grand Prix perspective, I would say, is balance things on a kind of a multiplicity of fronts. Is that, one, the heritage markets are very important to us in Europe. It's really the birth of Grand Prix racing. We want to ensure that we continue to go to the Silverstones, the Monzas, the Spas. Those are central. That's kind of like the Augusta or the Wimbledon of those sports. We want to be there. But at the same time, we want to apportion the races between Europe, the Americas and Asia. And I think we want to align them in a way where we actually are hosting all of the Grand Prix in one of the three areas at a time. Right now, from a structural standpoint, we're flying all over the world. And I think just from a cost management standpoint, it'd be much more efficient if you could do all the races in Europe in one tranche. The Americas in another tranche and then Asian in another tranche. And I think that also plays well from a sponsorship standpoint. If you don't have a global brand, but you want to activate in one of those, it's much easier to do to kind of have a payoff if you can do it from an alignment standpoint. And I think most importantly, from a fan standpoint, in terms of navigating fans, you can say, okay, for the next two and a half months, the Grand Prix are going to be at two in the afternoon. And the next two months, you're going to have to get up early. The following two and a half months, you'll have to stay up late. So I think there's an opportunity to be a little bit more fan-friendly as well. You know, how, about, so- how about Latin America? Latin America, we race in Brazil today. So you know we've got a queue outside my office yeah. of countries, states, municipalities, principalities a, a mile long that want these races. Yeah. And I think we're trying to be a little bit more thoughtful in terms of where we go, what the cadence, what the attribution back is to our brand. You have a lot of countries around the world that are investing Formula One to elevate almost nation building and to elevate their brands which we do, but at the same time, we would like to see a few more races in major cities around the world, street races, where we can activate large fan bases, where you have extraordinary iconography from a television standpoint. Like
1: London, for example.
2: Like London, as an example. I'm not going to Give you a, a heads up in terms of who we're talking about. We were in the throes of conversations with a number of different, uh, I would say, major cities around the world. This
1: will be a race on the streets of the municipality or the, or the major yes. city. And
2: we do that today in Monaco and we do that today in Singapore. Those are very compelling races. And I would say in some respects in the pantheon of, in terms of how fans perceive races, they're exciting. So we want a balance between heritage races purpose-built tracks like Austin, Shanghai, and then street races.
1: And how about New York? You think that's on our sights at some point?
2: We might need a little bit of change in in leadership in that city before (laughs) we get there. It's certainly a city that uh, aligns well with our brand and it would be a fascinating spectacle.
1: Oh, for sure. Some would say that we already have a Grand Prix in uh, New York City. <laughs> the, on the West Side Highway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. But how about the United States in general? I mean, Formula One is a phenomenal sport, great global fan base. You would argue sometimes in the U.S. it's less followed than in other parts of Europe or Asia or Latin America. How do you bolster that fan base in the U.S. and has it played into some of the locales you're thinking about?
2: I'm very optimistic about the states, and I think states and Asia are two big priorities from a growth standpoint. But if you look at the United States, you look at the digital platforms that we have today, second to Europe, the consumption of Formula One content on digital basis is the United States is second in terms of the volume of consumption. So I think that there is a kind of an underlying fan base there that just needs to be activated, that needs to be served. We went last year, from our friends at NBC to our friends at ESPN. Ratings are up significantly this year on the ESPN front. I think that will continue. There's a lot of emphasis put behind that great brand around Formula One. We have a fan festival that we're going to do the week of the United States Grand Prix in Austin. We're going to do a fan festival in Miami. So we're putting our efforts behind that. We're launching the live Formula One TV, live OTT product in the United States. This year is one of the markets we're going to be launching in a few weeks. And some of this stuff, Ari, I don't know if you should laugh or cry, but we rolled out our first marketing campaign ever before this season started. And so we're putting an emphasis on the United States. The campaign is introduced under the auspices of Engineered Insanity these two polarized concepts that play hand in glove in Formula One so well. So there's a lot of things that we're doing from a promotional standpoint and a digital standpoint that I think in the United States can elevate that audience and probably better serve and activate what is a a high degree of interest today.
1: Yeah. How about the demographics of the fan base? People may think of it as a primarily male-dominated sport in terms of its fan base, but you are trying to move the demographic towards... Uh, younger audiences, and also to have women and boys and girls really get into it, right?
2: I think we're kind of in the crosshairs of other sports in terms of our demographic profile. We're a little bit age, a little bit under 40 is the average age. We're about 65%, 70% male, the balance obviously female. You know, we want to drive that younger. We don't want to alienate the incumbency, but we want to grow the audience. And there's a number of things that we're doing to accomplish that. First and foremost, from a television standpoint, uh, the main point of interaction between us and our fans is we are totally revitalizing the production. We're trying to think of it as a, if you were a 22-year-old non-Formula One fan, you never watched a Grand Prix, and I was a 22-year-old friend of yours who was an avid fan, and I said to you, you have to watch a race. We want that non-fan to come in and understand what's going on. Uh, Ross Braun, here at Formula One, who's a Formula One legend, he'd retired from the sport for three years said he'd come in, sit down on the sofa and watch a Grand Prix midway and he didn't know what was going on. So if he doesn't know what's going on, you know, we need to make it simpler. So we're trying to simplify the telecast in terms of how broadcasters are explaining things. We have a brand new graphic package this year that is very compelling. We are amplifying the noises. David Hill, who's a legend in his own right from a production standpoint. From um, Fox. Yeah, from Fox. His resume extends well beyond Fox but that's where you know, right. he spent the majority of his career. He's doing some incredibly innovative things in terms of having ceramic microphones developed that are put into the exhaust of these cars to amplify the sound. The camera positions are gonna be lower at the Grand Prix because that shows speed we're closing the aperture of the cameras to focus in more on the cars and the racing we've got 25 spotters around every Grand Prix this year that call into race control and say you know looks like an overtake maybe happening here let's take a look at this so i think from a television standpoint we're doing things to appeal not to alienate the core but to bring in new and younger audiences then new digital platforms new social emphasis. We launched an eSport league the second half of the year. Next year, we have a full season of eSports going on this year. And this is the only eSport league in the world where the athletes and the eSports participants actually do the same thing. Although the Esports participants are in simulators. If you're playing FIFA or something, you know, you've know you got a control thing in your hands. So it's a very exciting, compelling television proposition. We did very well last year, and we've got um, nine of the 10 teams are participating in this year's competition, and we're very excited about it. We think we can activate new and different audiences that either ingest our content through esport or extend it to both eSport and the Linear.
1: Tell me about Grid Kids. Grid Kids is for the children, right? So
2: Grid Kids, I'm a, you know, one of the things that compelled me to move to London was I'm a massive Arsenal fan. You know, And I go to every single game I can when I'm here, and I fly my four sons over two or three times a year for the last decade to see games.
1: Those are my boys' favorite team as well. There you
2: go. Well, I, we should get together for a game. <laughs> for sure. So we're trying to expand our audiences and do things, I think, that create, as I said earlier, a bigger spectacle. Mm-hmm. And we've actually named them Formula One Future Stars because we're taking these kids From karting schools, the ASNs, the local motorsport governing bodies, are actually sourcing these 20 individuals at each Grand Prix, and they're from the the local karting schools. We have a sponsor in Puma that is affording them these bona fide, legitimate, fireproof karting outfits. I mean, they look absolutely fantastic. And we bring them to the Grand Prix with their families. We give them a look behind the scenes in the paddock and the garages on the pit. We bring them out for the anthem, stand them in front of ostensibly their role models for them. And I would really like to see down the road sitting on a sofa one day and having one Formula One driver saying, yeah, I was a future star. And I just think it's a good thing for the sport. It's been incredibly well received from a sponsor standpoint. From a promoter standpoint, the drivers seem to be enamored with it. And it just makes it a little bit bigger of a spectacle.
1: For sure. So I'm going to read off a few metrics because you're doing so much right now that I'd love to hear how you're tracking your own progress. Some of these metrics are public information. For the revenue of the company, just to give everyone a sense of the magnitude of the sport, was $1.8 billion last year. You have 350 million unique TV viewers across all Formula One programming over the last 12 months. And as you said, 21 Grand Prix events scheduled for this upcoming season. So which metrics should we track to track the progress and the growth of the company that you guys are looking at?
2: I wouldn't discount any of them. I think they're all meaningful and important as we go forward. I'm very encouraged about the future. We had to invest last year and this year i would say are are investment years in terms of human resources in terms of research in terms of building out platforms structure structure that you know other 67 year old companies particularly in the media business would be an anathema if you didn't have them so it's an exciting time now in terms of making this investment and i think the visibility of formula 1 in the mind's eye of sponsors circuits media rights holders across the board is very interesting we're kind of allowing people to get in and play so i th- think the opportunity is big if you see The metrics that we have today, they're all going in the right direction. 19 and going forward, those are going up. And I think they're going to go up across the board. And we're encouraged about the prospect.
1: You know, oftentimes when we talk about media from an executive perspective or even the players, the brands, we always talk about first names. So in our conversation, we've been talking about Bernie, Greg, Chase, Sean. So maybe we should go through exactly who all the characters are and how you all work together. Obviously, Bernie's now out of the picture, but there's a lot of identification with all the people involved here, including yourself. So Bernie Ecclestone.
2: Bernie is synonymous with Formula One, yeah. and, and always will be. Yeah. You know, he's a uh, a legend in his own right in, yeah. in the sport. You know, he's done very well for himself, and he's done very well for the sport. It's been a privilege getting to know him over the last year and, and interacting with him. Chase is the chairman and CEO of Formula One. And our fearless leader with the uh, motorcycle handlebar mustache. We have to you know, <laughs> figure out how to adopt that from a Formula One standpoint. Yeah. And then Ross Braun is the head of sport and technology. So he's very focused on uh, the technical aspects of it, the aerodynamic package, the engine, what the next generation of car is, circuit design, things of that nature. And Greg Maffey is the chairman of Liberty. He's the you know the point of the bayonet, the catalyst for this investment, yep. and, and the owner of the
1: company. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you've compelled Greg to go global. Yeah, you know, he's fully now in Europe and loving the sport. He is uh, obviously he is. based in uh, Colorado and Denver, but for some reason,
2: he tends to show up in races like Monaco. I don't <laughs> see him in Baku or you know Bahrain. We'll have to work on that.
1: Greg has now dutifully adopted glamour in his <laughs> life through the Formula One investment. So it's nice to see. Yeah. And then there's oh, Sean. Man. So Sean Bratches. Running the commercial operations, a great track record through ESPN, but you're just getting started. You have fresh legs and energy, and obviously you've been traveling away from your family as you built the business and you're building the business, and you must really love it to keep going at this kind of tireless rate.
2: It's exciting. I mean, this has been, in many respects, a professional gift, the opportunity to take the learnings that I've had over my career and apply them to such an extraordinary brand whose business, from a commercial standpoint, has really been laying fallow. It's been fun. A lot more to come, and
1: thanks for doing KidraCast and letting us go global here in London. It's great to be uh, talking to you about such a great sport and a great time for the business.
2: Thank you, and good luck. Thanks,
1: Sean.
0: I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can always follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time.
2: Audiation.